Oh, we're going to look at a passage today that I think drives home to us the fact that there is something greater than Wall Street and Washington and Hollywood. What am I talking about? That there is an eternity outside of this screaming, chaotic, temporal that has so many people trapped into thinking that this world is no bigger than what you can see and touch and taste. But that is a lie. And it's a deadly lie. Because every human being, you realize? Every, without exception, every human being, male, female, black, white, any part of the world, every human being is created in the image of God, which means they will spend eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell. And the deciding factor as to where they spend eternity is what they do with Jesus and the gospel right now here in this life. You realize everyone you interact with, everyone you work with, everyone you talk to on your street, everyone you engage at the gym or the store, people are making decisions today, today, that affect their eternity. Today, today, today is the only day, right now in this life is the only time that you could put your trust in Christ. And that determines where you'll spend eternity. And so the stakes are high, you guys. The stakes are high, and the opportunity is huge for us as believers to get in on something that really, really matters. If you've gotten distracted, if you've gotten sucked into something else, I hope you realize it's not that next house, that bigger car, It's not kids, it's not grandkids, it's not any of this that really matters most. Here's what really matters. Living for Jesus. Go ahead and have kids and grandkids, and I hope you have a house. But don't make that what you live for. As you do what people do, live for Jesus and spread the good news of the gospel. Go to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. And we're picking up here with Jesus speaking. So I want you to know this is Jesus speaking, but he's telling a parable. So he's setting it up to teach us some things about eternity and what matters most. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man Named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish 
in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, if you've been with us on this whole Luke journey, I do believe We have just encountered the most serious and sobering passage we've had yet. This is weighty. This is serious. This is sobering. And there's so much that I could unpack from this passage regarding hell, eternity, and the final destination of every human being. But for the sake of time, all I want to focus on today are those last three verses. And here's why. I'm going to focus on the last three verses because look at me. I believe in these last three verses. You see how Jesus himself exalts the word of God over everything else. In the face of what seems to be the constant cry of the human heart, both in his day and our day. What's that constant cry? Oh, if people could experience something supernatural They would believe. Give them something supernatural and they will believe. But Jesus makes it clear. Point number one. Point number one. God's word is more effective and powerful than any supernatural or spectacular event that you think would convince someone to believe. Look what's going on here. Once the rich man realizes and it settles into him that there is no hope for him right at first he wants someone to help him once he realizes that there's no hope for him and I want you to make note of that because there's no hope for anyone after you die I want you to get that you guys Because I know we live in a world where different groups teach different things. There's even so-called certain Christian groups that teach purgatory. There's this middle place you go when you first die. And then if your loved ones light enough candles, burn enough incense, pray enough prayers, it'll boost you from purgatory to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus didn't teach that. What the Bible teaches is that what you decide now in this life regarding Jesus and the gospel determines forevermore where you will spend eternity after you die. When you 
die. It is too late. There is no second chance. So if you've been wondering, let that settle in. And so once he realizes that, oh, notice what he does next. He does what so often human beings think. He's like, well, then if, if there's no hope for me, oh, please, please, please send Lazarus back to my five brothers. They would remember him. He, he sat at my gate. They saw him. They knew him. If someone they knew came back from the dead and warned them about what is, what is going to happen next in eternity, they would listen. They would be convinced. They would believe. Jesus doesn't agree with that. Look at verse 27. Look at what he's asking. He said, then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. Here's, what no- here's what's noteworthy. This is actually now a very selfless prayer, is it not? It's a heartfelt, earnest pleading. I'm not even asking for me now. If there's no hope for me, oh, I don't want my five brothers to land in this same place of torment. It is a heartfelt, earnest, selfless plea for the souls of his brothers. Does Jesus care about souls? Does he care about the souls of his five brothers? More than you would ever know. But I want you to notice how Jesus answers. I want you to get this fixed in your head and heart today as you live every day. You realize you're living every day. You're going to the gym. You're landing on that campus. You're in a classroom with. You've got coworkers. You've got neighbors on a street that you're interacting and chatting it up with. You're living every day with people created in the image of God who are going to spend eternity somewhere. And so letter A, here's what Jesus does. Jesus points us back to God's word as the most powerful hope for lost sinners. Look at what he says in verse 29. His answer back to this man is, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, don't make a mistake. He's not talking about the person of Moses and all the prophets because they've been dead for hundreds of years. This is Jesus now in the Roman Empire. Moses and the prophets have been dead a long time. What's he talking about? In their day, Moses and the prophets was shorthand for the Old Testament. Moses wrote the first five books, and then a prophets wrote tons of others. He is pointing them back to the Old Testament Bible and saying, they have the Bible. Let them hear them. Jesus was saying they need to hear God's word. That's what they need more than anything else. And, and get this, here's what here's should be our takeaway, because some of you really struggle and say, I don't even want to read the Old Testament. That's all they had. If Jesus had this kind of confidence in the Old Testament alone to help us realize who God is, who we are in light of who God is, and our great need for a Savior, if he has this kind of confidence in the Old Testament alone, how much more confident should we be, you guys? Do you realize, stop wishing, you know, Christians today tend to say, oh, I wish we had all the supernatural and stuff going on now that was going on in the book of Acts. You know what we have they didn't have? They didn't have the Old and New Testament. Oh, my word, we have it so much better because we have so much 
more. We have so much more information, and we have a new covenant of grace, and we have the record of a living, crucified, risen, reigning, returning Savior. Oh my goodness, so many things are much more clear, much more clear, much more clear. And we have a clear picture of the Savior. Old Testament continued to point. He's coming, he's coming, one is coming, there's one coming. We've got a record of he came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and he's coming back. Oh, we have it so much better, so much better. Confidence in God's Word. But notice how the rich man, I mean, the, the, yeah, the rich man pushes back, just like people today too. He didn't back down and say, oh, 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 you're right, you're right. Uh-uh. He pushes back like people still do today. And he said, oh, no, 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 not the law and the prophets, not the word of God. If someone came back from the dead and warned them, they would believe. Some of you may be guilty of that today, too. Oh, man. If just my grandmother, who we all knew loved Jesus, read her Bible, it was worn out. If she came back and sat on the edge of my nephew's bed and sang an Elvis song and talked about the future, we'd all drop to our knees. News alert. No, they would not. That's what Jesus says. Would they like it? Oh, yeah, we love stuff like that. And they'd say, sing me another Elvis song. We love the spectacular. We love the supernatural. We love an experience. But what you see from Scripture and you hear from Jesus is experiences and supernatural and spectacular do not change the heart. And do not convince people of who Jesus is, of who God is, of who they are in light of who God is, and their great need. The Bible does that. The Word of God has power to do that Jesus doesn't back down at all. You don't see Jesus saying, oh, you know what? What was I thinking? You're right. I'm wrong. What am I thinking just saying the word of God is enough? That you had the word of God, and look where you landed. I've got to change my thinking. Nope. 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 Jesus doesn't back down. In fact, I want you to notice how letter B. Jesus dismantles dismantles the thinking that we need something more flashy and effective than God's word. Look at what he says in verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be. What's the word? Say louder. Convinced. Convinced. Neither will they be convinced. Will they be excited? Sure. Will it draw a crowd? Sure. Will they tell others to come and see it? Sure. But they will not be convinced that he is who he says he is. You think about it. You know, in, the, in the history of mankind, everything that goes on, with there's the face of Mary in a cloud in Poland, and people just pack into the field with their pickup trucks and lawn chairs to see it again, see it again. Jesus was bleeding in an omelet, and everyone runs to that city in France to see the bleeding omelet. All it does is draw a crowd because the human heart craves the spectacular. But people are not changed for eternity. That is not what convinces people that Jesus is who he says he is and did what the scriptures testify he did. It just causes them to chase it and want it and love it. And actually, I'm going to show you here in a minute and demand more of it. It never satisfies. 
oh, oh, it's exciting, but it doesn't satisfy or give them what they really need. You know, we're so guilty of thinking, and I get emails like this still from time to time. Oh, Pastor Brad, if just it was like in the book of Acts, why are things like in the book of Acts where stuff's happening? People would come to faith in Christ. We tend to think, oh, if Jesus would just feed 20,000 people with two McDonald's Happy Meals, with extra plastic toys, woo! they would just drop to their knees and say, he did that with a Happy Meal? Oh, my goodness, he is who he says he is. If Jesus would just walk back and forth across the Ohio River between Covington and Cincinnati, over and over saying, watch this, can you do that? I didn't think so. I am who I say I am. If Jesus would just go to Children's Hospital and empty that thing out, healing crippled children and children with cancer left and right, everybody would believe. Let me help you. They would not. They would say, go to Christ Hospital and do it. Uh Uh-huh. Go to Mercy Anderson and do it. Uh Uh-huh. Go to St. Elizabeth, all the locations, and do it. You say, Brad, how do you know that? Because we have a record in the Scripture of when these things were happening, how people responded. When Jesus fed 5,000, and we know they didn't count women and children, so it was about 20,000 people with a few fish and some loaves. Thousands of people did not come to faith in Christ as their Savior. You realize that? Just a few days later, they crossed the lake, found him again, and you know what they said? Hey, do it again. In fact, they literally said, Moses... In the wilderness, and that was two million Israelites wandering in the wilderness. Moses in the wilderness fed us every day with manna. You fed us once. Step up your game. That's what they did. They said, do something bigger. Do something better. That's the human heart. Loves being taken care of. Loves seeing the spectacular. Loves an experience is only convinced and changed by the power of God's word and the spirit of God. Spectacular events are not enough. This is not what we should chase or put our hope in. And so Jesus gives no place for second guessing or doubting the power of God's word. Even though we crave the spectacular, you think about human beings, because we are created in God's image and have eternity in our heart, that is That is one of the reasons that we just long for something bigger, more, stirring, experience. We know we were made for more. But this is what drives X Games, you know, and the extreme this, and amusement parks, and thrill-seeking, and the study of paranormal and spiritual activities of demons, and, and Ouija board, and witchcraft. Human beings are fascinated with that, right? But I don't know what you've seen. As they head down that path, it doesn't convince them that Jesus is our Savior, that God is holy, and that you are a sinner in desperate need of that Savior. It just excites them about this. And they get other people to try to do it with them, and they chase it together. Here's what I I want you to understand. Make no mistake. Yes, the human heart absolutely has a fascination with and a thirst for the spectacular, an experience. Absolutely. Fascination with and thirst for the supernatural spectacular. But that fascination, here's what you need to understand, is insatiable. There's no bottom to it. And does not have the power to change a life and convince someone like God's word does. Like God's word does. Like God's word does. And so here's what you need to think about. 
Where are you related to God's word compared to Jesus? Did Jesus do some miracles? Absolutely. Did Jesus quote scripture? Oh, my word. He quoted from the book of Isaiah all the time. He quoted from the Psalms. He was quoting scripture. Even when he resisted the temptation from Satan, he used scripture, scripture. Jesus modeled God's word is what has power. So I want you to think about this. If you believed in the Bible like Jesus today still believes currently in the Bible, you would read it more and you would share it more. You would read it and you would share it. You would read it and you would share it. Some of you hardly ever pick it up. You say you're a Christian. You say, I don't have time. Oh, my word. If I hear that one more time, I'm going to lose my mind. You have time. You have time. You have Netflix. You have your stupid phone that you look at constantly. You have all kinds of time. What you lack is a belief that this is a supernatural, powerful, life-changing book. And so you leave it sitting there. If you believed about the Bible, what Jesus believes about it, oh, you would read it more for yourself because it keeps on changing you. It doesn't just save you initially and then, oh, whatever. It keeps on changing you as you know him. You would read it more and you would share it more. You would read it more and you would share it more. You would read it more and you would share it more. And I know that doesn't look as flashy or as exciting. But this book, I hope you realize, this book is explosive and has the power and life to change people. This book, been doing it for histories. This book, it's actually a dangerous book. If you're here and you're not a Christian, watch out. I would tell you to read it, but you need to realize you don't have to believe it to have it have an effect on you. You realize that? I talk to people all the time. They're like, well, have you read it? No. Well, then read it. But I don't believe it's the word of God. I don't believe it's inspired. I don't need you to. Do you realize this thing can change what you believe as you read it? This has the power to actually generate faith and repentance, and it changes you as you read it. This is not just another book, you guys. And you know I love books. I read 50 books a year. This is like no other book. I've been reading this since I was seven, and it's, in, it, it's inexhaustive. I haven't been like, oh, I'm so bored now. I've read it. Here we go. It's John chapter 11 again. Every year I'm seeing things, I'm like, how did I not see that? How did I not see that? How did I not see that? Different things stand out depending on where I am, where our world is, where the people around me are, what the needs are. This is a glorious, powerful, life-changing book. Unlike any other book. Oh, maybe you don't know this, but people don't repent based on emotions and spectacular events. We know that from the Gospels. There he was doing amazing stuff. And it would just cause them to say, do more. Do it again. Do it here. They, he'd come into a city and they'd say, we heard you did that in Capernaum. Do it here. Do it here. Do it here. One of the lessons from the life of Jesus that should stand out to us in the Gospels is that people don't turn to God because they've seen a spectacular or supernatural event. That's not what turns people to God. The only thing that would change them is because the only thing that can do this is the person of Jesus. It's the person of Jesus who has the power to save you, and watch this next word, and satisfy you. Save 
and satisfied. You realize one of the greatest needs of the human heart is just to be satisfied in something. That's why we chase. So we chase. Is it money? Is it, is it a better wife? Is it, is it kids? Is it grandkids? Is it relocation? Is it change my job? I don't love my job. Is it? Is it? We chase. We chase. We chase. Not realizing it's not something you're missing that will satisfy you. It's someone. And he has a name. Say it. Jesus has the power to save and satisfy. You realize every human being has a heart-shaped vacuum that can only be filled by Jesus that connects you with your creator God. And for the first time, cha-ching, you feel like you're, here's what was missing. I'm in relationship with my creator God through his son Jesus. Oh, I see things differently. Oh, I have a satisfaction I didn't have before. It's Jesus, not experiences and spectacular. Everything in life, whether it's a drug or experience, it begins to wane, right? And you just need a bigger one. And you need more. And you need a bigger one. And you need more. Nothing in this world is big enough to satisfy. Jesus. Jesus. So, if I'm bringing Jesus like this and saying that's who we need, then I hope you're asking, so... All right, how do people get Jesus? Oh, so glad you asked. God uses his word. God uses his word. You realize this book leads us to Christ and feeds us with Christ. Even the Old Testament, you guys, was still about Jesus. They preached Jesus from the Old Testament, believe it or not. The Old Testament was pointing, saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, And in the New Testament, we've got all those books. He came, he came, he came. And then they stick the landing in Revelation saying, oh, and he's coming again. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The human heart craves the spec. You realize this right here actually gives people what the human heart is longing for, and they just don't know it. Because here's where you have Jesus revealed to you. Jesus, who can save and satisfy, save and satisfy, save and satisfy. Supernatural alone won't get it done. In fact, you know, here, here this rich man is talking about someone from the dead come back. That would do it. They'd convince him. You realize right after this parable, as he's teaching here in Luke 16, right after this, he does raise somebody from the dead. Another guy named Lazarus, not the same one. But another guy named Lazarus, he raises him from the dead. In fact, it's the story of Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus, and he was good friends with them. He hung out in their home in Bethany all the time, about 19 miles outside of Jerusalem. The sisters send word to Jesus, Lazarus, your friend. You actually know him. Your friends with us is ill. And the scriptures say Jesus waited. He delayed. He didn't leave and go heal him. And the sisters were hurt by that. He waits three days. I'll tell you why he waited three days. Because he wanted this to really show something spectacular. Three days is how long it takes for decomposition to set in. So that no one could say, well, I guess he was just passed out in there. I guess he was just weak, but he never never lost a pulse. No, no. Three days he waits. So that when he shows up, oh, Jerusalem has gone out there. They're weeping and wailing. Back in that day, they they would have paid mourners in case the family can't scream loud enough. And you're paid to just scream and cry and carry on. It is chaos. The man's been dead three days. And Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, 
my brother Lazarus wouldn't be dead. He's like, hold on, Martha. And he says, move the stone. And she says, old King James, but Lord, he stinketh. He's going to smell horrible now. My brother is going to, he's decomposing. And Jesus said, move it. And then he said, Lazarus, come forth. If he hadn't named Lazarus, everybody in there would have come out. So he had to name a name. I mean, he has power, you guys. I'm just calling Lazarus. Everyone's like, call me, call me. Nope, Lazarus right now. And Lazarus comes stumbling out, wrapped in grave clothes, and what? Everybody there dropped to their knees and said, you are the one, you are the one. John chapter 11, read it. No, they did not. It said a large part of the crowd went away and plotted how they might kill Lazarus and Jesus. You're like, what? Yeah, that's how hard the human heart. Now we're going to have to kill them both. We wanted him dead. We can't have Lazarus walking around saying Jesus raised him. Kill them both. How do we kill them both? You're like, what is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. That's how hard Dead, the human heart is set against truly acknowledging who God is, who we are in light of who God is, and who Jesus is, and that we desperately need a Savior. We don't want it. We want the spectacular, but we don't want that. You know why? Because God's Word actually teaches you guys that repentance is a gift and faith is a gift. Hope that doesn't freak you out, but the Bible teaches that repentance and faith are a gift. Yes, we're to call people to repent. They did it all through the Bible. So I'm calling them to do something that they cannot do unless God's spirit moves first and uses his word and does something. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says this. For by grace are you saved through what? Faith. And that not of yourselves. He's saying that faith isn't something you did. Do you think you generated that? I'm, I'm just smarter than ever. Why do, why do so many people not believe? You're smarter? I don't think so. You probably didn't repent and believe the first time you heard the gospel. Why at that funeral? Why at that moment? Why would that message or that podcast, why would that conversation, why as you laid there at night in a verse came, why did you believe when you believed? Let me help you. God worked. God worked. And that'll make you more compassionate towards your loved ones and friends instead of saying, how hard is this? Heaven, hell, Jesus, duh. Are you an idiot? No, they're not an idiot. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, and so were you until God, by his spirit, turned the lights on, and you saw Jesus as beautiful, and you wanted it, and you heard this message as good news instead of a threat, and you said, yes, yes, yes. Faith is a gift from God, and the same thing's true about repentance. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 22 to 20, or 24 to 26, this is a passage I love to pray. I love to pray scripture. I have multiple pages now of adult prodigal kids who grew up in Christian homes. Can that happen? Where they heard the gospel, they went to Sunday school, they saw it real, and they said, no, no. Well, guess what? I pray for them anyway. Because God has power. And here's one of my favorite places to pray. It is so long. I've got like five pages now. 
And I lift my hands and I pray this. Listen to what this says in 2 Timothy. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Oh, look at this next phrase. If God perhaps will what? Grant them repentance. He's got to give them repentance. He's got to grant them repentance. Because look at what happens next. This is what we want to see happen to them, right? But it only, what, what I'm going to read next only happens after he grants them repentance so that they may know the what? Do you realize truth can hit you right between the eyes and you can say, mm-mm, mm-mm, what, what? It can land right in your lap and you're like, what, what? So that they may know the truth. Oh, but there's more. And so that they may come to their, say it. You ever talk to a friend or loved one? You're just like, oh my word. It's like they're in a coma. It's like lights out. It's like ding, ding, ding. It's just bouncing. Yes, yes, but don't lose heart. Don't lose heart and don't say, how am I not explaining this well? Is my illustration falling apart? Am I, oh, this is such good news for you guys. It's not all about us and how well we share it. It's about God and his power and his mercy and his word to change lives. And so if you believed that, you'd pray. So you hear my stories where, oh, I talked to this person on the flame, praying. I talked to this person in the gym. I've learned my neighbors by name, and I guess what else I do? And then I write their name down, and I pray. I pray. I pray. I, have you noticed how so many of my stories, have you heard any of my stories end with, and they dropped to their knees, unbuckled from their seat, and in aisle 27 said, Oh, my word! This is what I've been waiting for. Do you hear my stories often end with someone getting saved? Do you hear me sounding disheartened? Because you have no idea what God can continue to do long after you're gone. Because it's not about us. It's about him. But here's what I want you to realize that maybe you didn't catch. I try to find a way to share some scripture. It's not Brad with his amazing articulation or an illustration. I'll use a scripture like John 3.16, for God so. You realize today, yeah, you still see a sign in the end zone at a football game that says John 3.16. Do you realize how many people have no idea what that says? That when it happens, you can check out Google that, that shows sometimes a million people will Google, what does John 3.16 say? People don't know. And you can say it right there in the store on your neighborhood street, in your seat on the plane, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When I quote scripture or when I write it down for someone, I know I just gave them something that has the power to change them long after I'm gone. So it's not us. It's God's word that has power to change I was seated next to a Jew one time. That, I mean, he was a big deal, not just a regular Jew. He was in charge of the synagogue. He headed up the synagogue. He was in charge of the day training for all the kids to learn how to be a good Jew. Guess what? I just simply asked him this question. I said, so if you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, he said, yep, he's not. Why aren't you still sacrificing heifers and bulls and goats and lambs and sheep and burning incense? That was what covered your sin, and that was your atonement. You're not doing that. They're not. And you don't believe Jesus is the one. And it, it was like a thought that had never occurred to him. And then he gave me the answer that everyone gives. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, what you are. I said, so how? 
How can you be right with God? He said, just try to be good. Just try to be good. Try to be good. Which always, great next question is, so how good is good enough? That's a very fuzzy, scary thing to live by. Good. How good is good enough? And so I just wrote down Isaiah 53 on a piece of paper and said, would you read this? He said, yes, I will. I've never seen him again, but I've prayed for him for 12 years. I don't know what God is doing long after I'm gone. When I arrive in the new heaven and earth, there may be this guy saying, welcome, friend, because I shared that message with him and he kept reading it and he looked it up and he's like, oh my goodness, Jesus is the Messiah. He did for me what I couldn't. I don't know what God is doing, but I get to share God's word, word. I don't ever find myself thinking, I wish I could just blow up aisles 28 with my finger. And then people would say, oh my goodness, I I believe, Brad. You don't have to do something spectacular. That's not what changes lives. Bible. Bible. So here's what's so exciting. Yeah, the book of Acts has miracles scattered all through it. You realize even in the book of Acts, and I'll tell you why that was going on. Here's a new kid on the block, Christianity, right? Did they have religions already? Absolutely. So early on, God was pleased to grant more of the spectacular supernatural to just get people's attention. But notice how often they would bring it back to word, 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 word. So that even in the book of Acts, you find places like Acts chapter 28. Had Paul done any miracles, healed anybody? Yeah, he had. But he didn't always go around doing that. Listen to this in Acts 28. Here's what you see, that he knew matters more that we actually still have today. Acts 28, 23, from morning till evening, Paul explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to, here's our word, say it, convince them about Jesus by blowing up chairs left and right with his fingertips. No. From the law of Moses and from the prophets. What does that refer to? What was he using? Bible. Paul taught from morning till evening, all day long, declaring, explaining, using his Bible, and never thought he needed to do anything more spectacular the entire day. Use God's word. Use God's word. Because true repentance, here's how I would say it to you. True repentance and faith, you ready, are never generated. It doesn't happen in someone's heart by the amount of spectacular things happening outside of someone. True repentance and faith are generated by the word of God exploding inside of someone. God's spirit and God's word. God's spirit and God's word. And so here's what I want you to get. We don't have as much of the spectacular happening, but you don't need to feel bad. What he had, we have, and in fact, we have more. We have a new covenant of grace we have, we have a record of a risen Savior. We have what's coming next. We have so much more. And then, oh, by the way, wow, we have God's Spirit in every single believer. You realize in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would simply come upon people momentarily and use them to do something amazing? Today, today, every believer has the Spirit of the risen Jesus Christ living in you. 
That's all. Oh, my word. That's why when the disciples said, Lord, don't leave us, when he rose again and he said, I'm leaving, I'm like, no, oh, no, no, no. He's like, oh, listen, if I don't go, I can't send the help. When Jesus was here, he could only be in one place at one time. If he was in Capernaum, he was not in Bethany. If he's in Bethany, he's not in Jerusalem. And now he's with you on that campus, in that job site, on that street, in that grocery store. We have the spirit of the living God in us and the word of God alive to us. We have what matters most. God would love to do a miraculous, amazing, life-changing work in the people around you without you doing anything spectacular or supernatural. That's my point number two. Like, how's this supposed to happen, Brad? Well, God leaves no doubt as to how he designed this message to be delivered to lost sinners. You're like, if, the, if it's God's word that has the power, how's this word supposed to get to these people? So glad you asked. Because that brings into view every one of you who claims to know Christ. Go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, beginning of verse 12. Romans chapter 10, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. So look at me. Yes, God chose to send his son through the Jewish nation. It doesn't give them an advantage or a leg up on everybody else. Oh, I'm a Jew. I'm automatically in. No, you're not. In fact, they struggled to receive this Messiah because they were so caught up in their Jewishness. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Every person has to put their trust in Jesus and submit to him as Lord and say, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. He's talking about spiritual riches. What matters most? The mercy of God, the grace of God, to be right with God, to be alive. He bestows his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, don't make a mistake. Think if I just say, Jesus, when the Bible talks about name, it's talking about his character, his person, who he is, his purpose. And you call on it and say, yes, I believe you are who you claim to be, and that you did what the scriptures testify. Everyone who calls on him, cries out to him, and says, yes, I believe, save me, will be saved. Verse 14, how then will they call on him and who they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, I'll be honest, I wish the word preaching wasn't used right there, because now you all shifted and said, yay, Brad, go, you go. You and Peter and Brian and others... It's simply the word kerygma that meant to herald something. So in that day, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have newspapers. When there was good news and you wanted everyone to know something, they sent these heralds out from city to city proclaiming, proclaim. The word just means to proclaim. Guess who's supposed to proclaim this good news that God has done in his son what we could do, not do for ourselves? How many Christians? Louder. Raise your hand. Tag, you're it. You're it. Don't think, man, yeah, that's why we got missionaries. That's why we got full-time staff. That's why we pay you guys. Go, I'll pray, you go. It'll never get done that way. It's all of us. It's all of us. It's all of us. 
How are they to hear without someone preaching, proclaiming? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? Oh, look at this. So faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ or the word of God. That's why you guys, as I talk to people, it doesn't bother me when someone says, well, I don't believe the Bible. I don't need you to believe it. I just need you to read it. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word. This thing is powerful, you guys. This thing is explosive. This thing has life unto itself. This thing is dangerous if you don't want your life changed. I know what some of you might be thinking. Oh, my goodness, Brad. That's God's plan to use us? This is doomed for failure because I'm so weak and I'm so ordinary. I, I don't, what if I don't have all the answers? What if I, what if I, what if I, let me help you. Go to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1 and look at how Paul summarizes this whole enterprise, this whole endeavor. God has done in his son everything necessary to save people. And then he says, I'm going to use my people here in this world to proclaim it, to proclaim it. To proclaim it. And when you say, oh, but I don't think I'm smart enough. I haven't had training. Oh, what if they ask me something I don't know? Oh, I'm still in process myself. Oh, I feel so frail. I feel so. Here's your passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And I want you to notice how word gets used. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So to people who are not saved, this sounds like utter foolishness. Somebody died on a cross 2,000 years ago and my sin was placed on him and God's wrath was poured out on him instead of me. Yeah, right. Yeah, it sounds like foolishness. But don't be ashamed to proclaim it. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the what of God? Power of God. For it's written, this is God speaking now, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I'll thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where is the debater of the... Do we not have debaters today, right? Where's the debater of this age? Don't be afraid. Don't think what... I often... Someone will ask me something, I do not know the answer. You realize? That's okay. I just change the agenda. I do a Jesus thing. You know what Jesus always did? He would answer a question with a what? Question. And I'll just say, why do you ask that? Because do you realize very often... People who are struggling and throw something at you, there's almost always an experience behind that. You know, see, like how could a good God, how could there be a good God in a world of evil like this? That's usually not being spoken in a a vacuum. Why do you say that? My mother suffered and died of cancer. Very often, if you will just listen, right? Don't be so afraid. Don't think you have to shoot everything down. There's debaters, but God's word is still powerful. Where's the debater of the sage? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of, oh, I'm sorry, for since the wisdom of God, verse 21, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Tell them what Jesus did. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. And the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 26. Here's where you come in. 
For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not, now notice, he's not saying not any. God does save some brilliant people. Not many. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful or many of noble birth. Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak. You feel weak? In the world, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised. Do you feel low and despised? Even things that are not. Sometimes you just think, Brad, I'm just not. Not what is necessary to get this done. I'm not what the world says is it. I don't. It's okay. God says, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He uses his word and he speaks it and he would love to communicate it through weak and ordinary people. And then no one makes a mistake about where the power is. They're saying, well, it can't be her. She's real. I know her. Perfect. Weak. Ordinary. Communicates the life-changing message of the gospel through weak, ordinary people. You realize God... Stop thinking, oh, he's looking for someone else. He's looking for you. He would love to use you and your network of friends, you with your coworkers, you with your neighbors, you with your extended family. It's you he's looking for. Oh, and he uses his word, and you have his word. Let me give you some examples. Kelly Monroe was a Harvard medical student. Right? So here's somebody smart, Harvard medical student. And what I want you to hear about these stories I'm going to rattle off is how it was God's word and it was worth inviting someone. We get so intimidated think, oh, she would never be interested. Oh, he would never. You don't know that. Just ask. Invite him to church. So you want to do a Bible study? Would you? She's a Harvard medical student. And some Christian students invited her to study the Bible. Instead of saying, no, are you crazy? She was an atheist. She said, you know what? That seemed reasonable because I'd never read it for myself and I was always just quoting people that had. And she literally says, I thought at the very least, after I read their book, I'll be better able to tell them how crazy it is and what's wrong with it. And she literally says, fortunately for me, and she quotes Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active. Living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, as I examined the Bible in detail for the very first time, my mind began to change. I saw the distortions and the misquotations of those who had argued against the Christian faith, and I saw the philosophical and historical evidences for Christianity. Oh, I love this. And in the scriptures, I found God. God. Someone invited her to study the Bible, and she said yes, even though she's an atheist. At a Together for the Gospel conference in Louisville some years ago, I heard the testimony of a young man named John Joseph. Again, an atheist. He said his life was just filled with lust. He was a, he was a drug dealer. And he said one night he watched the documentary that Bill Mayer made. I don't even remember that. It was called Religious or Religious, where he just mocks and belittles all religion. And here's an atheist watching it. And he says, even though I was a fellow atheist, I thought, that didn't seem fair. I'm going to examine this myself. And he made a mistake. He Googled Christianity, atheism, 
debate. You realize we have some answers, you guys. Christianity is not like mindless based on nothing. And he began to listen to Christian apologists. And then he stumbled on to Desiring God Ministries. And he said, I listened to sermon after sermon after sermon by Pastor John Piper. Until finally, after hours of, notice what he said, God's word. Nothing spectacular, no writing on the wall, nothing in his omelet. Until after hours of God's word, I believed and I was converted to Christianity. Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured professor, you guys, at Syracuse University, a lesbian, leading all the student groups on campus for lesbianism and transgenderism and all that. And she began to study the Bible. She was a literature professor, so she was simply studying it as a research project for two to three years. And she says, that period of two to three years of studying the Bible led me to Christ and away from everything. It cost her dearly. Imagine. But she believed. She saw who Christ is. She saw who she is. She saw who God really is and saw her need. Nabil Qureshi wrote a book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He was a brilliant Muslim medical student at Old Dominion University. And simply a Christian friend invited him to study the Bible and compare it to the Quran. Let's study the Bible and compare it to the Quran. And God used it. He walked away from Islam and it cost him. He lost his family. He was persecuted. I remember years ago in New York City, Vicki and I led a marriage conference. And we're just chatting with different people. And we had the privilege of meeting two young men who were brothers in their late 20s. And they were, they were working in their father's pizzeria that he'd had for 30 years. And they'd both recently come to faith in Christ. And I love to hear, you know, how? How? What happened? And the one guy, and both of them assured me, they're like, oh, my goodness, we wanted nothing to do with Christianity, nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the Bible. But the first guy said, a high school friend, so listen to me, high school students, a high school friend who had repeatedly shared the gospel with me all through high school. He wasn't even high school anymore. God kept using that word. The gospel he had shared with me so many times came home to me, and I believed his brother was a little tougher, but he had just come to faith in Christ. And here's what he said. I said, how did this happen? You're going to love this, mamas. He said, my mom in New York City is really expensive, so people keep living with their parents a long time. If you're here, you should not be. <laughs> He's still living with his parents, and she's packing his little lunch before he goes to the pizzeria. And every day when she packed his sack lunch, she would put a verse in his lunch bag on a piece of paper. Just one verse. And he said, that led him to faith in Christ. And I pushed back. I'm like, you know, he was a hardened atheist. I said, why didn't you just grab him out of the bottom, crumple it, throw it on the ground? I'll never forget. He stood there and he said, no, 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 I, I couldn't do it. He said, I read every one of them and I would stick them in my pocket and I saved them all. And God used, what did he use? Say it again. Do you have God's word? Oh, in multiple English translations, do we have what we need to make a difference today? Does God want to use you as a part of that? Oh, my goodness. Let's make this year. We're early in a new year, right? March. 
Let's make this year like never before, a year of digging into God's word. If you've fallen out, pick it back up. If you've never really been faithful, start. Let's make it a year of digging into God's word, applying it to our own lives and living it out. And then I mean, speak it, speak it, blog it, tweet it, share it. But God's word has power to change lives. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. We pray that you would use us in this dark world. We feel ordinary, we feel weak, we feel inadequate, and you say, perfect. Now, I'll get the glory, because I have the power. I'll do the heavy lifting. God, open our eyes to lost people around us, to learn their names, to call them by name, to pray for them, and then look for an opportunity to share your explosive, life-changing word. We love being your people. Use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.